everyone. It's good to see all of you here. Um, I wanted to start with a bit of a hypothetical situation. Yeah, have you ever found out about someone who was lying about you behind your back or slandering you? And you didn't know when they were doing it, at least at first, but then you come to find out because their friends who you thought knew you well now have a different opinion of you than what you really are. Now you have to regain their trust because they don't see you in the same way that you see yourself. So now you've lost the trust of your friends and it wasn't even your fault. You didn't do anything, but now you have to go through the work of rebuilding that trust, of re-showing them the truth of who you are. Do you think anyone in the Bible besides Jesus had to deal with slander? I mean, every single prophet basically dealt with slander. But in the New Testament in particular, there is one example. It's Paul. He wrote a whole letter about slander, which we're going to be in today. And it wasn't just about slander, but that was a good chunk of it. In the letter of Galatians, which is Paul's first letter that he ever wrote that's inspired, we see that Paul was being slandered behind his back and that he ha had to go through the process of rebuilding trust with the people he had once ministered to. And he was not happy, to say the least. So please open up to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. It's Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. In this passage we're going to see that we need to be sure of the true gospel set forth by Paul and to be wary of slanderers who would seek to distract us from God or distort the gospel. I'll say it one more time. In this passage, we will see that we need to be sure of the true gospel set forth by Paul and to be wary of slanderers who would seek to distract us from God or distort the gospel. Let's read verses 1 through 5 first. It reads, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I'm glad you said that. That will be important later on. Now, I don't know how you feel about reading and studying the first couple sentences of New Testament letters. Before I had seminary training, I always kind of thought they were nice little pieces of contextual information, but they weren't really useful to the actual main point of what the letter was driving at. Well, in the book of Galatians, that's not the case. And Paul, in the first 10 verses, basically lays out what he's going to talk about for the rest of the entire letter. That's what we're going to look at today. See, I found out, oh wait, So Paul wanted his readers to be aware of why he was writing to them from the start of the letter, and I'm going to tell you that as, why as, well, it's, as well as why it's important to know what Galatians is about. So when Paul says in verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle, 
not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, we need to take a very close look. First, we see that Paul calls, him, calls himself an apostle. Now, apostle just means sent one, and it refers to a special type of man that Jesus chose for the purpose of writing scripture, spreading the gospel, performing great miracles, governing churches, and eventually dying for their faith. It is a charged word, and it's carefully chosen by Paul here. How do we know this? Well, it's because right after he says Paul, an apostle, in parentheses, at least in my Bible it says this in parentheses, he talks about how he's not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. What he's drawing to attention here to is the fact that as an apostle, Paul was directly chosen by Christ to shepherd the church and have authority over them. There was no man who made Paul an apostle. It was God himself who made Paul an apostle. That means that there is no man who has greater authority except for Christ in the church. So, rather, so when Paul, by the Spirit, tells you what to do, he's saying it's inspired by God and is God's word. So that means you must obey. Paul is saying that as an apostle, he speaks for God when he's inspired. Now, I want you to remember this point because it's going to bring understanding to the rest of the book of Galatians. So by pointing to himself being an apostle chosen by God, he is giving weight to his words. He's putting his authority behind them. That way, it's both a reminder to the audience, the churches at Galatia and us, and a way to tell us that what he's going to say next is important and needs to be obeyed. Now, moving on from that, we have this phrase, and all the brothers with me. This brings more credence to the authority of Paul. What he is saying here is that whatever Paul talks to the churches of Galatia about, God supports and authorizes, and fellow believers also support and agree with Paul. Now, of course, the fact that God supports and authorizes what Paul says is the more important of the two, but it's also good encouragement for these churches to know that Paul has run what he's about to say by other believers, and they agree with him with what's going on in this letter, and that it acts as encouragement to these churches in Galatia that what he's about to say needs to be heard by these churches. And then finally, we have to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was located in what is today Western Turkey. Now, if that doesn't make immediate sense to you, then it is northwest of Israel, east of Greece, and south of the Black Sea. Okay? They were the receivers of this letter, and the letter itself was probably handed off to church by church by church every couple of weeks so that no matter how many churches were in the area, they would all get a chance to read it and hear what it had to say. Now, what this tells us about the issue Paul will talk about is that it's affecting an entire geological area of the church and of the Mediterranean. 
What we will find out later, but what I'm telling you right now, is that these churches are a mixed bag. They're primarily Gentile Christians, but there are some Jews mixed in. Now, next are verses 3 through 4. Here, I'll read that one more time. Let's read it. I'm going to read verse 5, too. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. So, here, Paul blesses these churches to have peace and grace from God, the Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, there's the reminder that Paul desires these churches to have grace and peace that comes from the Father. That's important because, as we will see, the reason Paul is writing these, this letter is not for a good and happy reason. So, the churches in Galatia are failing, but this phrase reminds us that Paul hasn't given up on them yet. He still desires their good. There is still hope for these churches to turn back and be proper recipients of God's grace and peace. Now remember that we have already seen how Paul focuses on God giving him the authority as apostle. Notice now how we see that God is giving these churches grace and peace. That's a theme that's going to carry out throughout the rest of this passage. It's the theme of God giving. God gives authority. He gives grace and peace. And we're going to see him having given his son. God gives. But first, notice that Paul then says, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is important because it's a reminder who both Paul and these churches are accountable to and supposed to obey. Paul is saying that when the people in these churches came to faith, they also became servants of Christ, and that as servants, they are expected to do and believe certain things. Paul could have said, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a more general phrase that doesn't directly apply to us and doesn't directly remind us of who he is to us. However, by saying, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's pointing directly to them, and he's saying he's your Lord too, and you better be prepared to obey him. Now, the church would have caught on to this, and it's a clear sign that what's to come probably isn't going to make them very happy. Now, we keep reading and see that Paul reminds them of what Christ did for them. And here comes that theme. Christ gave us himself to die for our sins. God gives. Why? In order to rescue us from this present evil age. Now, I don't think anyone here is going to argue that the world we live in is presently evil. So I'm not going to belabor the point. We live in an evil world. Sin has its influence here. However, I want you to focus on several things. First, Christ gave himself. Second, it was according to God's will. And third, God is the one who receives all the glory. For all those things, we are not included except as the ones who receive God's gifts and return glory to him. That's it. The reason 
Paul reminds them of what God has done is to remind them of who they are and of who we are. We are receivers of grace, peace, and mercy under God's sovereign hand. As well, this three-part phrase in verse 4 acts as a quick summary of the gospel. It contains Christ, his sacrifice, God's will, our sin, and God's glory. These are all essential parts of the gospel. And finally, Paul ends this section with the word amen, which I reference would be important later on. Amen just means I agree in Greek. Simple Greek word, we adopted it into the English language over the centuries. When Paul says amen, it means that he agrees with what he has said so far. And go figure, right? It makes sense. But it acts as an invitation to the churches in Galatia to say amen too, which means they agree with what he said so far. And what we're about to find out is that not everyone in the churches agree with what Paul has said so far. Now, I think we would all agree right now that Paul hasn't said anything very controversial, right? As a recap of the first four verses, we saw Paul assert his authority as apostle over these churches, we saw that the Father has given us Paul, grace and peace, the Son, and that this is according to God's will. There's not much to argue about there, apparently, but there is. Now, let's read verses 6 through 10. It says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we pre have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So here is the point of the letter. The churches at Galatia were being deceived by an idea that distorted the gospel. We haven't been told the details of what this deception is yet, and we haven't been told who was planting this idea in the churches. However, I think verse 6 makes it clear how important this issue is. Paul is shocked, he's flabbergasted, he's probably frustrated, and he's definitely upset about what's going on. These churches are deserting the one who called them to faith which is the Father, for another gospel. And this gospel has no grace of Christ in it because it says that the gospel calls us to faith by the Father using the grace of Christ. So that means when the gospel isn't the real gospel, there's no grace of Christ in there to draw you into true faith. Now, and apparently this transition from true gospel to false gospel happened pretty fast. Paul says, you are so quickly deserting. 
he's kind of like, he's writing this letter and he's thinking, I was really hoping I wouldn't ever have to write a letter like this. You know, I was just with you guys. I was just there teaching you the true gospel, all these things from the Old Testament, and now here I gain word that you are leaving the gospel that I gave you for something that's false and untrue. I, I, he's probably, I, I bet you didn't expect to receive this from me, but here it is. Now, these Christians are turning away from the true gospel that Paul gave them for another one, a false gospel, a gospel that distorts the true one. The true one. What we have here is a case of humans trying to make the gospel more palatable. Something that is trying to change the gospel in such a way as to make people want to hear it. There's only, now, we aren't told exactly what this distortion is, but there's really only two ways to change the gospel. By adding to it, or by taking away from it. Now, by both of them, according to Paul, are worthy of hell. That's what it means to be accursed. He wishes they would just go to hell, which is intense. However, by looking at verses 4 and 5, where we discovered that Paul focused on how God gave us everything, we can begin to understand that most likely this false gospel was about adding something to the gospel, something that humans have to do. That's why I focus so much about why Paul talks about the gospel in terms of only what God has done. Because when you add something that man has to do to the gospel, you've distorted the true one. You've lost sight of the fact that it's all of God and all of grace. We can begin to understand that most likely this false gospel added something to the true gospel to make it not all about God giving. So these churches were presented with a lie disguised as the true gospel. Paul was absent from the churches while this was occurring. It happened quickly, but longer than a few weeks or months. The churches had a choice. Paul's gospel or this new gospel. They looked at Paul's gospel and thought, we can do better. And then they started to believe in this new one. They turned away this is important, convinced that what they were doing was the right thing to do. I want you to understand this. They were deceived into thinking that by believing this new gospel, they would bring more glory to God. Okay? So you aren't dealing with malicious people who hate God here. You're dealing with Christians who think that they're glorifying God by believing this error. We aren't that far from them. Does that make sense? Okay, I don't want you guys to distance yourself from these churches as if they're some kind of different type of people. No, they're just like us. Now, it's interesting that Paul describes this false message using the word gospel because he makes it clear that it's really not the gospel. However, the reason he uses the word gospel is because that's how the churches were hearing it. They were hearing it as the gospel. So he's using a word they recognize. They were being told that this false message was the true gospel that would save their souls. And however, it's not another gospel. There is only one gospel, and anything else is not the gospel of Christ. 
If you change the gospel in any way, it ceases to be the gospel. And now, to be clear, I don't mean to, to kind of calm you down if you're thinking, oh, maybe I've presented the wrong gospel. I'm not talking about using different words to describe the same thing or using synonyms. I'm talking about changing an essential part of what makes the gospel the gospel. Now, in verse 8, we learn a fundamental part of this true gospel. The gospel is the gospel apart from the one who speaks it. I'm going to read verse 8 again. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So even if Paul himself, the one scolding these churches and writing this letter, were to be wrong about the gospel, then he himself should be sent to hell. That is, it doesn't matter who it is that tells you the gospel. If they get it wrong, they got it wrong. Truth is true regardless of the one who says it. You can think about that for a while. <laughs> so the, the gospel is more important than any one person, group of people, or type of being, hence his reference to an angel. This verse and verse 9 are extremely strongly worded. And you know it's important because he basically repeats verse 8 and verse 9. It's almost the same exact language. Now, now, so there are a lot of sins where Paul would be the first one to encourage the sinner to go to God, repent of their sin, ask for forgiveness, and then stop sinning. He'd be the first one. But this one is different. Paul skips straight to the condemnation. There's no intermediate steps. He says if they are preaching this false gospel on purpose, then they ought to be sent to hell. That's how bad this is. Now, remember that Paul is a big believer in mercy. Think about this. He was one of the worst persecutors of the early church before he was saved. He did horrible things to Christians. So how much more mercy did he receive when the Father forgave him for his sins? And yet, this man who has received so much mercy looks at this sin and says, this is absolutely the worst. I'm trying to drive this home. Changing the gospel to a false gospel is horrid. Okay? There's no life in a changed gospel. Now, it's not that this sin can't be forgiven. It's that the people who are preaching this false gospel aren't doing it unknowingly. They're doing it on purpose. They aren't looking for forgiveness. They're looking to damage the church. Not help it. And now, finally, for verse 10. I'm going to read that. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ or slave. Now, there's a lot of information packed into this verse. And a lot of it goes back to the very start of the letter. First, there is the fact that Paul talks about this in terms of himself. You know, am I trying to gain people's approval? Am I trying to please people? These are rhetorical questions, and the obvious answer is no. But it goes back to the first verse where Paul asserts his authority as an apostle. If Paul truly is an apostle, truly sent from God, 
truly writing this letter, truly having given them a true gospel, then why is he being accused of trying to please man rather than God? Because ultimately, that's what this is. These false teachers, as we will call them, who gave this false gospel were accusing Paul of preaching the wrong gospel in order to please men. Now, this is the deceitfulness of these false teachers. This is their process. This is how they do things. False teachers don't just come into the church, start yelling out a new gospel, and then rake in the converts. Okay? No, 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 no. They come in quietly. They come in slowly. And at first they seem normal. But then slowly they begin to start raising questions, raising doubts, maybe about the preacher, maybe about the message. They'll start telling little lies about the character or the actions of the preacher or of the truths of the gospel. It's going to start small. And they slowly grow and grow until they've got you hooked, and then they pull you out. You see, you've got to notice the parallels that these false teachers share with Satan in Genesis. Satan didn't come into the garden banging a drum, letting everybody know he was there to deceive human beings. No, he came in quietly. He met Eve when he could get at her privately. And though Adam was close by, God was not. And then Satan questioned God to Eve, which is the first time God was ever questioned in the Bible. And then, so Satan questions Eve in a way so as to undermine her faith in God and what he said. And then Eve acts upon these doubts in order to sin. With the churches in Galatia, these false teachers started with Paul's character and authority. If they could undermine the church's trust in Paul's authority as an apostle, they could then say his message was not inspired by God. See the connection? That's why he spends so much time trying to prove his authority or talk about his authority as an apostle. It's connected. Now, the reason for this is because these churches in Galatia failed to disconnect Paul from his gospel. Remember why I told you that the gospel is the gospel apart from the one who speaks it? Well, they failed to realize that. They saw Paul was a messenger giving his gospel. It was Paul's gospel not Christ's gospel. And the false teachers exploited this weakness. Now, however, oh yeah, so just because they first heard it from Paul doesn't make it any less Christ's. So these false teachers encouraged the churches to believe that Paul was just another man giving just another message of hope. Once they believed that, they could then slander Paul behind his back to make the church believe that he preached to them to gain some fleshly value from it, like money, service, or like free room and board. That is where the last sentence comes in. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. If his gospel was really to make people like him and feel indebted to him, then why did he call himself a slave? This may seem a little strange to us, but to these people, slavery was real. Many of them were probably slaves themselves. And let me tell you, if you're going to be introducing a new religion or a new god, there are a few things you want to avoid doing if you want people to like you. 
One is avoid making your God seem weak. Don't ever let him die. Avoid making yourself the bad guy. No one wants to be the bad guy. And three, avoid making your entire purpose to serve another being. No one wants to submit. Now, Paul did all of these things in his gospel, and I just told you to avoid them. And that's because his gospel wasn't made to make people happy initially. It was made to make them realize their sin and to realize that they are the bad guy and that God wasn't weak for dying on the cross. It was necessary. And that they need to submit to this God as they were supposed to from the beginning. See, once the false teachers do this, they're able to convince the churches that Paul was really in it for himself and not for their good. Then they are able to break down Christ's gospel. And that's what lands us here in this passage, where we're at. This is why Paul makes such a big deal about his apostleship and his calling from God. It all starts there. If Paul isn't an apostle, you can ignore him. But if he is an apostle, and he truly is sent from God, you better sit up a little straight in your seats, because he speaks for God. He has his authority. And it just so happens that the next section of this letter is Paul making his case for his apostleship. However, we're going to put that on hold to the next time I preach, and now we're going to move on to some application. So why does this matter? Well, for one thing, it encourages you to make sure you are believing the right gospel. According to Paul, it's a serious thing to know the gospel because by it, you can know God. So that brings us to, what is the true gospel? That's a good question. The reason Paul didn't talk about it in too much detail in this passage is because normally when you read the letter of Galatians, you read the entire letter in a single sitting. However, because we're just doing a single passage of it, I'll tell you. So if you want, if you want to write this down, I'll repeat it so you can get ready. The true gospel is that Jesus Christ the Son of God sacrificed himself as God in flesh for our sins according to the will of God and that we bring nothing but our sin to God so that in faith we would be saved by grace for his glory. That's a mouthful. <laughs> and I'm sure you could add some more details to it, but I'm trying to get the nutshell. So I'll repeat that one more time. The true gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sacrificed himself as God in flesh for our sins according to the will of God and that we bring nothing but our sin to God so that in faith we would be saved by grace for his glory. Now I want to emphasize several things at this point. One is that Paul is not worried about true believers accidentally messing up their presentation of the gospel okay paul is not trying to make you afraid he wants the churches to realize their error and turn back from it the, so this so for us this stands as a warning the gospel is a work purely of god alone made necessary by our sin but to his glory that's essentially a rewording of verses three to four if those ever change in your mind, then you need to consider where your faith truly lies. Is it in yourself, this world, or is it in God alone? 
Now another application, stemming from being sure of the true gospel. And I talked about this a little bit earlier. Don't ever think you are too far from the churches in Galatia. We are all human, and humans don't change. We want a religion that suits us. But since we have a sin nature, we are always desiring what God does not. What this means is that we want a gospel that pleases us and suits us, or at the very least, doesn't give glory to God. God wants a people to worship and serve him, and the true gospel reflects this desire. Now, that means we all desire a false gospel, even me. The only thing that keeps us from falling headlong into this, to disaster like these Galatians is the word of God, his grace, and the spirit that lives within us. Acts as a seal for us. As the old saying goes, but for the grace of God, there go I. So praise God that you have been warned of this danger again and that you have the chance to ensure that you won't fall prey to it. And third, consider how you ought to react to people like those false teachers. They're still around. They haven't died off in the first century. So they just come by different names. These false teachers were distinguished by their hostility towards the truth and towards those who preached it. Their desire was to damage the church and damage true believers. They slander rather than criticize. Now, there's a difference between criticism and slander. Slander is lying about a person behind their back to make them look bad to someone else, which erodes that person's faith in the one who was slandered about. Criticism is challenging a person's actions, thoughts, or attitudes in order to encourage them to improve. Criticism is a good thing. Everyone needs it at some point. Not all the time, but it's good for you. Now, no one ought to be slandered or to slander someone else. That's wrong and evil. However, pastors which I'm bringing up, I'll tell you why I'm bringing them up. Pastors need both encouragement and criticism if they are to remain sharp and fresh in the pulpit. But they shouldn't ever be slandered. Paul was like the preacher for this church, and he was being slandered. That's why I bring this up. Remember, the false teachers started with the preacher and then moved to the gospel. So remember that. Remain watchful for those who seek to damage the preacher or the gospel. Typically, they will do it when the person they slander is not around to hear it. Now, I just want to make it clear that when I'm talking about slandering your pastor, I'm not talking about someone disagreeing with a point in their sermon. I'm talking about someone attacking the character of that pastor, which is a very serious accusation. So, in the end, you need to be sure of the gospel and to watch out for slander both against the word, the gospel, and then also preachers. Now, let's pray.